Hello, welcome to Newsweek from 8.9.com. I'm Finlow Castain. We've got two interviews for you this week with Sarah Grady from British Pasture Leather and Patty Fong from the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. And then we'll move on to a fascinating discussion about how the focus changes when we view food systems through a fossil fuel lens. So first up, new and important analysis by the Global Alliance for the Future of Food and Dahlberg Advisors finds that food production, transport and storage account for at least 15% of fossil fuels used annually. This report is the first time that researchers have focused on fossil fuels rather than simply emissions and estimated their global use across the entire food supply chain. Patty Fong is the Programme Director for Climate, Health and Wellbeing at the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. And I asked her why she chose to focus on fossil fuels and fossil fuel dependent food systems. Thanks, Finlow. So you might have seen that uh, maybe it was last week. There's new analysis that came out from climate scientists that said that we have just six years left if you want a 50-50 chance of maintaining global warming to below 1.5 degrees centigrade. And this means that we urgently need a global agreement to phase out of fossil fuels. It is one of the major drivers of greenhouse gas emissions. And so there was a call to phase out of fossil fuels last year, about a year ago at COP27, which did not succeed. And the um, United Arab Emirates, which is the host of this year's COP, was is a pesto state and was um, one of the of the countries that opposed the language to call out for fa- phasing out of fossil fuels. This year, they have pledged to raise food systems transformation as one of their priorities alongside uh, tripling uh, the amount of renewable energy. And so while we support the prioritization of food systems um, at the UN climate conference, we believe this, this cannot come at the expense of a fossil fuel phase out. In fact, true transformation must address fossil fuels, um, including petrochemical expansion into agrochemicals and plastics, as well as the overall energy intensity of industrial food systems and renewable energy access for developing countries. It's always struck me that an emissions focus has advantaged technical fixes and fossil fuel dependent farming systems. So do you think that by taking this approach, you'll be able to call out those more industrialized models within food systems and elevate the importance of agroecological models instead? It is one of the angles to help look at how food systems are contributing and impacting impacted by climate change. It is not the only way. So fossil fuels indeed, but there's also other sources of emissions such as methane and nitrous oxides. And so things that are, are not fully captured by just a focus on fossil fuels. So we don't want to deflect from that. Actually, we need all of it to happen together. But I think this is a, a new angle to help understand, well, if you're actually trying to reduce um, energy consumption, increase renewable energy access, how do you frame it in a way that you're also thinking about the impacts of food systems so that actually we can benefit and provide multiple outcomes, uh, multiple synergies? So who's the report actually targeted at? And essentially, who needs to be mobilized to drive the transformation in food systems that you believe humanity requires? So we had two audiences in mind when we first commissioned this report. One is really aimed at the climate community uh, who are engaged at the COP COP processes this year. So this is why we we launched last week, just ahead of COP. So both the negotiators as well as climate advocates who are advocating for a fossil fuel phase out and a clean energy transition um, and really calling for uh, an integrated approach because we do have common goals. A second audience we had in mind is the philanthropic community. So for too long, grant making, Strategies have been siloed around energy mm-hmm. and food and land use. Um, and it doesn't need to be this way. So if we can 
um, actually work together, we can be much more effective in reducing unintended consequences, such as, um, for example, uh, around bioenergy and biofuels, biogas, um, by collaborating together. And so we actually have a accompanying a more detailed uh, discussion paper in which we go into more detail on um, some of the tensions in need of dialogue. So how can we bring food and energy communities together, but also the near term high impact opportunities in which actually um, if we actually work together, we can actually have a much more powerful force. Energy is a key focus for the report, including the phenomenal energy requirement of lab-produced proteins. So how do we transition to a low-energy, zero-carbon food system? So indeed, reducing excess meat consumption is amongst the best ways to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But as you point out, highly processed meat substitutes can be very energy intensive to produce. So besides supporting the food environments that promote both plant-rich diets um, and minimally processed foods, we recommend a number of other ways uh, to reduce the use of fossil fuels in the food system. So for example, phasing out the use of fossil fuel-based agrochemicals and instead investing in sustainable farming practices such as agroecology and regenerative agriculture, shifting to renewable energy for food processing and transport and reassessing subsidies that go towards biogas and biofuel uh, producers. Now, you mentioned philanthropic organizations earlier on, but how do you think the financing of food systems needs to change to support the transition that you're looking for? So this report doesn't go into detail on the financing, but we did produce one about a year ago ahead of COP27, in which we found that um, even though food systems contribute to a third, so 33% of greenhouse gas emissions, only 3% of climate financing actually goes to food systems. So one is we need to drastically increase the amount of financing that goes to food. And if funders, all types from public, private, philanthropic funders, consider the right set of indicators um, at the outset of designing a program so that programs to reduce energy use and increase renewable energy access, not only tackle greenhouse gas emissions, but also improve um, health and nutrition, safeguard livelihoods, and improve food security. Just one more thing. So it's not only the amount of finance, but it's the type of finance that needs to shift. More finance needs to go directly to benefiting smallholder and family farmers, which produce the majority of food um, in the world. And they currently just receive just a tiny fraction of the climate financing that is available. And just finally, Patty, do you think that we can achieve all this in time to avert calamity? And can we deliver it while also ensuring global access to quality nutrition? Well, we don't have a choice, really. Um, you know, climate change is already impacting the yield and nutritional quality of the food that's being produced. We need to start to incentivize um, and really accelerate the production of more diverse traditional and indigenous varieties uh, for direct consumption in order to build resilience for local communities and safeguard indigenous knowledge and cultures rather than the crops that are currently being incentivized, that are energy intensive, used for highly refined sugars and fats, um, and then used for ultra producing ultra-processed foods or as feed for industrial livestock production. Just finally, agroecology and, and regenerative agriculture are actually some of the best ways to improve access to nutritious foods and boost farmer incomes at the same time. Early this year, we supported a comprehensive study of community managed, managed natural farming in India, which showed that farmers practicing agroecology increased their yields by 11%. And because of these practices, they didn't need to rely on uh, costly external inputs such as chemical fertilizers and pesticides. 
and their incomes actually increased by an average of 49%. That was Patty Fong from the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. British Pasture Leather has created a traceable supply chain to produce leather entirely from UK livestock reared according to the principles of regenerative farming. Their vision is to link leather with agroecological agriculture and to forge new connections between farming, food and fibre. Sarah Grady is a co-founder of British Pasture Leather and I started by asking her just how she defines regenerative leather. From the perspective of British Pasture Leather, we are really looking at the agricultural origins of the raw material. So for us, that refers to the farming practices um, in which those animals were raised. So really trying to make a connection between leather and agriculture, which ironically in leather material and in in the leather trade is something that is not often done. So so for us with British Pasture Leather, looking at um, the word regenerative, it really refers to um, looking at how that animal lived and its role in stewarding landscapes. And are you looking at uh, sort of environmentally friendly ways of tanning and processing the leather as well? We are, yes. So uh, we are currently working uh, with a British tannery that uses a traditional method of what's called vegetable tanning, which has nothing to do with vegetables, but means that it was tanned using natural materials, which are tannins derived from uh, barks and leaves, similar to the tannin you might have in your tea. Um, the most of the of leather, most leather in the world is tanned using chrome, which is a heavy metal, which we are avoiding because we're preferring to produce a material which at the end of its usable life will be biodegradable. Um, there are quite a lot of innovations in, in the technologies for tanning. So there are other options. Um, the challenge for us is that we've made a commitment to produce only in Britain. So really trying to create a localized supply chain. And sadly, the infrastructure for leather production in Britain has withered significantly. Just this year, two tanneries have gone out of business. So for the moment, we're working with the options that we have. Um, and we're very fortunate to have the relationship that we have, as I said, with a tannery that uses a very traditional method, which is more natural. Well, let's come back to the infrastructure point a little bit later. But first of all, why is it that you think regenerative leather is important? Why is it important as a supply chain? Well, you know, from my perspective, um, it's incredibly important to look at uh, farming and food systems and the role that they play in our um, preservation of our ecosystems and biodiversity and the health of soils and land. Um, and it has quite often been overlooked that leather is a product of our food system. So um, if I, I feel that we have a huge opportunity when we uh, reframe how we look at leather as a material in reconnecting it to agriculture and really considering how it is or can be a product of farming practices which are incredibly beneficial. So when we're talking about regenerative practices um, in the context of livestock agriculture, we're talking about um, holistically managed herds that are eating a diet of 100% pasture and the effect of those animals on land in terms of their of their um, grazing uh, of grass and uh, the the effect of their trampling and their manure on the land is incredibly positive for the health of that soil. Um, and this is a, is a well understood thing that um, when those animals are managed regeneratively, they bring incredible benefits to those ecosystems. So where do you source your leather from and how do you ensure that you get good quality hides that you can use to make things with? Yeah, so one thing that I think we often have to clarify is that 
we are facilitators of a supply chain. So we have created an entirely new supply chain in the sense that uh, we are identifying the farms that have been practicing, again, what we would call regenerative practices, and then taking those hides all the way through to the finished leather process. So we're not buying leather, we're producing leather. We are currently choosing farms that have a certification called Pasture for Life, which in the UK is currently the highest standard of uh, livestock practices. Um, and so we identify those certified farms. We identify the abattoirs where they're taking their animals. We procure the hides from the abattoir, and then we oversee the production all the way from the abattoir through the tannery, through the finishing process. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the assurance of the uh of the quality of the hide uh is something that for us again goes back to the farm certification so the question of quality as it relates to cattle hides for leather or finished leather is something um that is defined at least by us quite differently again than the conventional trade in leather so um typically a more mainstream leather would be considered high quality if it has no scars and no scratches and is incredibly uniform and standardized in its surface character. Um, we're looking at the question of quality quite differently. We're looking at it more along the lines of your earlier question of um, what is it that makes it regenerative? So that really means that we're preferencing those regenerative farming practices. And, um, and the result of that is that we have hides that are of a very high quality from the perspective that the fiber structure is strong um, and there's a real density and a thickness to the leather. So it produces a very strong, durable leather. And that, of course, is because the animal has grown to to its natural habit and has eaten the, the diet that it was meant to eat. Um, it does mean that there are quite a lot, uh, there's a quite a lot of surface character on the leather um, if it were left in its, in its natural state. So growth marks, scratches, scars, and that's something that we're dealing with quite creatively in terms of looking for brands and designers that can accept some of that character, but also using creative uh, techniques to mitigate some of that character so that you still get quite a, a lot of yield from the from the finished material. And what do you do with them once you've taken them through that process? Do you turn them into products yourselves or, or not yet? Um, not yet. We're we're hoping to do that. We we are currently set up as a producer of leather material for other brands and designers of leather goods. So we've been in the process, as we've been developing this supply chain over the last couple of years, we've been in the process of presenting this idea and communicating to brands and designers that make things like handbags and accessories and furniture and footwear. Um, and we're just at the point where we're ready to sell small volumes of finished material to brands that wish to adopt this for their products. Okay. So how has the fashion industry taken to the idea that leather can be a good regenerative product from here in the UK? Well, it's it's very much in the zeitgeist in the sense that fashion and design are really looking into their supply chains and trying to understand the impact of the materials that that have been chosen for you know a range of products. Um, and I think that I think there's a huge receptivity to this. Um, I think there's a real opportunity to, to, as I said, make a change in how we perceive this material. You know, the the reason that Alice and I set out to do this was because we both identified the fact that as it is right now, 
brands and designers don't have any choice when they're searching for leather material for, you know, whether it's a, a chair or a handbag or a pair of shoes, because this distinction around farming practices does not exist in the conventional trade of hides and in, in leather production generally. Um, so what we really set out to do was to give um, users and buyers of leather a choice so that they could know that when they're choosing the material or choosing a product made from that material, that it comes from regenerative origins. Um, I think that uh, there's, there's, there's a huge opportunity there. Um, we are doing this at a moment when meat and leather are very much in the sort of critical crosshairs in our, in our cultural discourse. And, um, and I often say this, but what, what I'm really looking for is more nuance in that so that we don't have such a polarized, um, notion that it's either all meat is bad or therefore you can't consume meat or animal animal products at all. I do believe it's a totally personal choice, but I also think that we need to have um, more general understanding of the fact that there are meat production systems that are incredibly positive and beneficial where animals are raised to a high degree of welfare. And as I said, their, their presence on the land and in the pasture is incredibly positive, producing healthy food, looking after rural economies and rural landscapes. And so, you know, that, that is where um, I, I, we we have a real opportunity with this material um, to get into the conversation around leather that there is an option that is not all bad. Now, you mentioned abattoirs and tanneries earlier on. So finally, from your perspective, what needs to happen for regenerative leather to scale here in the UK? Yeah, it's a, it, that is a very complex question. So on the one hand, there would um, need to be more access to leather production infrastructure, as I said. Um, the systems that Alice and I are building have the potential to scale as the certification grows. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for us, it, there will be some economies of scale when we can get more more hides from regenerative farms in any particular location at an abattoir. You know, by the way, and I'm sure your your viewers know this, there is a crisis, of course, in the loss of small-scale rural abattoirs. So supporting that infrastructure is just as important as looking at looking at the leather infrastructure. Um, but there's another question here that has less to do with systems and has more to do with a sense of value. Um, you know, and leather is in our lives quite generally as a, an abundant um, commodity, cheap, abundant commodity. And um, re-looking at that and understanding that when it has come from regenerative systems, when it's come through a local supply chain like ours, which at the moment is quite relationship intensive, making it time intensive to coordinate, um, the resulting material has more value and also has a higher price. And so I think, again, really um, developing our understanding of this material and looking at its at its intrinsic values, its embedded values, is, is part of that scale question. That was Sarah Grady, co-founder of British Pasture Leather. In this week's discussion, we're focusing on what happens when you view the food system through a fossil fuel lens. I'm joined by Patty Fong from the Global Alliance for the Future of Food, by Sue Pritchard, the Chief Executive of the UK's Food, Farming and Countryside Commission, and by Carl Williams, a Director of the Food Systems Consultancy, FAI Farms. I started by asking Patty why, when most people want to talk about emissions in the run up to COP28, she's chosen to shine the light specifically onto fossil fuel use. Thanks, Vinlo. Um, so over the past couple of decades, we've had strategies to reverse climate change by focusing on decarbonizing the most energy intensive or most emissions intensive sectors. 
Three quarters of our global emissions comes from energy use for electricity, for heating and for transport. And these strategies are working, but if we don't get a global commitment to phase out of fossil fuels and address emissions in our food systems, we're not going to achieve our target and stay below 1.5 degrees. So, but these can't be siloed approaches, right? You can't work on energy on one end and food on the other. Um, so we really, we entered into this research to understand, well, actually, how are these two sectors intertwined? And we asked the question, how can we support philanthropy, policymakers, and climate advocates explore a more coordinated approach to food systems transformation. Thank you. Sue, why is a focus on fossil fuels welcome from your perspective? Well, we've said for a long time that the diet we're eating at the moment is basically fossil fuels on a plate. Mm. Uh, and that's very often hidden to most um, most citizens. We end up focusing on quite reductive things like a bit of consumer choice here or a bit of behaviour change there. This report is a really welcome contribution to us being able to think much more widely and much more systematically about all of the component parts of our current food system and where we need to act to get most benefit. Do you think that that sort of singular approach around fossil fuels makes it easier to visualise, makes the narrative easier, more straightforward for policymakers and for customers, consumers? Um, when, when you talk about food, everybody can relate to that. We all hopefully eat food up to three times a day. And so it's a, it's a routine to talking about much more complex issues that can sometimes feel very distant and abstracted for, for us. So when you have that kind of data related to the food on your plate, mm -hmm. it makes the system much clearer, much cleaner for people to understand. Thank you. Carl, you've criticised a straightforward focus on emissions, which we know can be distorting, particularly around uh, ruminant methane, for example. So are you pleased to see this shift in attention towards fossil fuels in food systems? Yeah, I, I think in terms of sort of yeah where we started and easy to say, Finlow, I think the yeah the the big focus on emissions I think did no favours to the ruminant sector yeah at all yeah and and, and certainly you know we've got an organic you know pasture for life system um, at FAI you know and, and methane is probably our biggest emissions factor when you start looking at some of this so so and and again I think you know looking through a different lens and having a different set of you know data and metrics that we can look at you know some of these challenges as opposed to just a single metric around yeah um methane carbon dioxide and, and uh, nitrous oxide i think is is a really good um yeah is a really good perspective to start coming from and yeah i, I was really interested to sort of read through the report um in terms of sort of the, yeah that that um allocation to farming um it surprised me the amount that you know of um the emissions that sort of sit in food processing and that sort of consumer facing element um, I think, yeah, we've, we've got obviously some big opportunities to, to look at, but it, I think it broadens the debate out a little bit as opposed to getting stuck on, you know, one or two emissions factors that, um, yeah, will mean that we end up, yeah, and I suppose, yeah, as governments are starting to talk about, you know, reducing livestock, um, numbers in terms of, you know, certainly in, in terms of ruminants, but it's not going to, it's not going to deal with the issues that, um, this report raises. It's interesting, isn't it, to have that, uh, that attention drawn back to fossil fuels, which is, of course, what we were talking about, you know, 20, 30 years when we were first discussing climate change. And there is a big difference between fossil methane and naturally cycling methane. And there's still an awful lot that we need to understand about 
about how uh, that that cycling methane operates in, in grass-based systems, how it actually fuels grass-based systems and assists soil health as well, Carl. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, the research that we've done on, on our farm um, on the outskirts of Oxford, yeah, we're 1,300 acres, predominantly, um, you know, ruminant cattle systems. Yeah, we've been going through a, a four-year sort of regenerative grazing um, project that's been sponsored by McDonald's UK. And I think, yeah, what we've seen, you know, is definitely an increase in carbon um, sequestration on the farm. So I know our carbon stocks are increasing. Biodiversity has been a massive um, you know, increase that we've seen on farms. So again, yeah, these systems are sort of more holistic in their approach, um, you know, to dealing with some of these issues. You know, we, we use a minimum amount of fossil fuels. You know, we're organic, so there's no, um, you know, there's no um, fertilizers or agrochemicals used on the farm. You know, it's it's pretty much sort of the guys driving around on a quad bike. Um, mm. So it's and in terms of our emissions, you know, as you say, Finlow, there's there's only one place that those emissions are coming from, which is you know our grassland pulling that out of the atmosphere. So it's it's quite a circular system. Interesting. Of course, that quad bike, uh, I don't know who it is, but it could be an electric quad bike. And we'll come on to energy a little bit later. Just finally, Carl, before I go go back to the others, the report does say that 15 percent of global fossil fuel use is down to food systems. Is that figure a surprise to you? Yeah, I suppose reading the report, it did, it did surprise me in terms of yeah the amount of fossil fuels that we are. Because I think, again, you know, when you look at you know some of the you know, the data, you know, certainly things like worlding data where, you know, 75% of emissions are associated to, you know, fossil fuels. I think, yeah, them pulling that details out in terms of, you know, what, you know, agriculture or the food supply chain is, is pulling from that system is, I suppose is, is quite, you know, it's, it's quite a concern that, um, you know, we're, we're at that sort of level. Um, and again, without knowing that, you know, the opportunities to, um, to reduce that, you know, certainly from a, you know, I think there's bigger opportunities within that supply chain. Certainly feel that there's bigger opportunities for government to support, you know, some of these initiatives, certainly at, at farm um, level and which I think is more carrot. I think, yeah, we need a little bit more carrot from the government. I think maybe a little bit more stick um, on the supply chain. But then I would say that being a farmer. <laughs> so where do you think the largest fossil fuel reductions can be made fastest within the food system? I think the report gives us a, a very clear steer. I, I think it, clearly there are things that we can do on farm. And we just heard those really clearly. But such a significant proportion of um, of fossil fuel use in uh, in in processed foods and ultra processed foods, the stuff that ends up on our plates was a surprise to me. That was really um, interesting and significant. So I think you know we're, we're we're probably pretty well rehearsed now on the sorts of things that we can do on farm, but it very clearly directs our attention to thinking hard about what processors and retailers are doing with the commodities they're buying and turning into food for our plate. So I think that that's the area that we can start looking really, really hard at. Um, and we can go on to talk about that or I can pile straight into it. Let's, let's come back to UPFs in, in just a moment, because but I think you're right. This, I think it's really interesting that we have, of course, spent a lot of time focusing on the farm system the farm element of food systems and so having this light shone onto uh, these sort of cogs further up the chain um, looking at the way that things are processed the way that uh, retail
retail uh, the food is retailed is 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 very mm. important patty do you think that it's possible to make big reductions in just one area of the food system or do we need that sort of whole food system approach that sue very often talks about uh, in order to eliminate the use of fossil fuels i think you might guess my answer we we always talk about a whole of food systems approach mm -hmm. so you can't, if you just pull on one lever, you're going to have a, an effect on another part of the system. So you need to, you know, one, phase out of fossil fuel from food systems with by tackling things like fossil fuel-based pesticides, fertilizers, plastics, and packaging. Um, at the same time, you have to invest in scaling up on regenerative farming and agroecology. You have to invest in scaling up renewable energy across the supply chain for cold chain, for processing, for transport. And then you have to, you know, support um, eating more locally produced, seasonal, minimally processed foods. Patty, we've talked a little bit or we've touched on energy, but let's sort of set this uh, part of the conversation up a little bit more. Energy is a key focus in the report. Fuel energy for power, chemical energy for growing crops. Why are food systems such intensive energy users? And what can be done to address the energy element? Let me specify that it's not all food systems. It's especially industrialized food systems. They're not only energy intensive, but this trend is growing. And, and this trend is due to increased mechanization on farms. So, you know, um, you know, larger farm tracks, you need more machinery on the farms. And the growing use of fertilizers and other fossil-based inputs, the International Energy Agency, the Food and Agriculture Organization are both projecting this increased use going forward on, on all these external inputs. Um, and then you have this increasingly globalized supply chain. Um, you have growing demand for meat, dairy, and ultra-processed foods. And then you also have, to some extent, some of the new food trends, such as alternative proteins. Indeed. And something that's less well known, perhaps, uh, is that that, that lab-produced protein uh, requires a phenomenal amount of energy to produce it. We're perhaps used to the idea that industrialized agriculture is a high energy user, but we often think of lab protein as a climate solution. But bearing in mind the energy use that is required uh, to produce that sort of food at scale, do you think that it can play a substantial role in the future of food? Or should we simply be turning back to that greater diversity of whole foods and seasonal foods? Well, so those that are working on um, lab-produced protein, they acknowledge that, you know, that it's it's very energy intensive and they're betting on the decarbonization of the energy system to make it successful. And those of us that are working on energy system decarbonization and the accelerate uptake of renewable energy know that it's not just about replacing one source of energy with another, right? So to actually have a decarbonized system, energy system, it requires fundamental changes. Just like in food, it also needs to take place in energy. You need to address grid and storage infrastructure. But in order for it to have a stable system, you need to reduce demand overall for energy. So, and we have to shift how and when we use the energy. So we need to reduce demand for energy across all sectors, not just for food systems. Um, in order to support a fully decarbonized energy system. Um, and we can contribute to this by diversifying our diets away from the extractive energy intensive commodities um, and towards more locally produced seasonal and traditional foods. Sue, I want to come and uh, ask you about UPFs. But first of all, Patty mentioned there the drive from the FAO to produce ever more food. And there is this sort of idea that we need to you know, almost double uh, food production by 2050. Do you think that we need to increase food production or is it about managing food better? I think this is a really, really important question. Um, we already produce more than enough food for nine billion people on the planet. It's just um, inequitably distributed and profligately wasted. 
Producing ever more food raises all the sorts of questions that Patty's just described there. More energy use, more packaging, more transport, more logistics, more, more, more. I think there's um, there's a really important conversation for us to start having about what, what is enough, what is sufficient to meet our needs in a more balanced, a more fair, a more equitable, a more sustainable food system that starts to kind of push back at the increased consolidation and financialization of the food system, by which I mean the number of companies who are trying to extract some value, um, they often call it adding value, it's clearly depleting value from the quality of the food that we eat. Because of course, as we said right at the start, we all need food, we're all going to continue to need food, that is going to be, that, that is, you know, undeniable. And so, um, Leaning into that question, to what extent should we be thinking about um, a sufficiency of food, you know, a good enough sufficiency of food that meets everybody's needs on the planet? And um, and those of us in the global north who are consuming far too much food, wasting far too much food, um, getting perhaps overexcited about novel foods, novel but you know, deeply unhealthy foods, have to take you know, a long, hard look. Uh, the direction of travel that that's taking us in and how we can step back from that. So one of the key culprits that we've started to talk about in terms of energy use, energy, sorry, energy use, is that ultra processed food. Uh, and first of all, what do we mean by ultra processed foods? Because it's increasingly talked about within the policy community. But what's the definition? For example, are cheese and bread processed or ultra processed? What, what well, is it depends. Depends which cheese and it depends which bread. Um, so ultra. Is, Ultra-processed foods is a category of foods. It, it is a controversial definition, but, um, you know, full disclosure, I think it is good enough for us to work with for now. But essentially, it describes foods that are, that are kind of industrial formulations of food products. They're typically mass-produced. They use ingredients that you won't find in your kitchen and that you couldn't replicate in your kitchen. So they use all sorts of perhaps industrially derived ingredients like protein isolates and all sorts of additional chemicals. And the, and the research is starting to indicate, although it's still early days, but it's not just the ingredients in these foods that are problematic. They're typically high fat, high sugar, high salt. Um, and, and all of these additional chemicals, but it's the method of processing that is um, having a serious impact on our health and well-being. So it's still quite controversial, but um, I, along with lots of other people who are particularly focused on food and health, think that these are very much good enough definitions where we should be starting to apply the precautionary principle much more seriously in thinking about the kinds of foods on the shelves and on our plates. I don't want to put you on the spot with something that, that's potentially, you know, quite a technical question. But when you talk about the type of processing, are you able to unpack that at all? Well, it's the sort of processing that's going on in in um, big factories where um, you know it's, it, you can imagine the kind of extrusion and add you know the additives of, um, uh, of chemicals mm. that you just simply can't replicate, okay. um, and it's the combination of chemicals uh, that are required in those foods and um, and and as I said the methods of production in combining those chemicals and creating those chemicals that are now uh, it seems. Um, contributing to increased 
ill health and and poorer well-being, poor mental health too. So it's not so it moves us away very much from thinking about um kind of calories and ingredients, but it also invites us to think about the methods of production of those foods. It is under-researched, but there are lots of uh uh, you know, really high quality um, research teams now are starting to look much more closely at the implications of this. So when we're talking about fossil fuels in the food system, you know, we've largely been talking about the energy that's going into the food system, you know, where that comes from. And, and now we're starting focusing on processed and ultra processed foods. And that requires uh, a, a more of a societal shift. And, and partly it requires that we understand some of the social impacts associated with UPFs so that that makes them less desirable, perhaps to policymakers as well as to customers. So how do you, in, how do you get a sense of how how we reduce their prevalence in society, Sue? Well, do you know, I think we just have to not make them. We have to not make them. We, we need to be looking but very... But um, I mean, I th- th- this is this is a, this is a huge topic that needs um, perhaps a whole other programme mm-hmm. of its own, and we can talk about the work we've been doing um, with citizens, our citizen mm-hmm. engagement programme. But first of all, let, let's start from people wanting those products. Mm-hmm. Businesses often argue that they wouldn't make them if people didn't buy them and they're only responding to customer demand. But that's simply not how it works, is it? Those big businesses are spending millions and millions of pounds in their R&D kitchens, formulating products and then persuading people to buy them. We're not really sitting around thinking, you know, what I really, really want is, I don't know, let's say, Kit Kat in a breakfast cereal. I don't think many people were sitting around requesting that. And yet one major food business decided that would be um, a a, a good product to to sell and market so they could broaden their market share in the cereal market. If you take a photo of the cereals in a supermarket aisle, you will see banks and banks and banks of really unhealthy products that are being um, marketed to children. Um, they're, They're high in sugar and they're often um, ultra-processed. So it's not so much that consumers are asking for them, it's businesses are formulating them. Now, in exactly the same way that we're making the case, I think collectively, that fossil fuel companies have to stop producing um, fossil fuels, we have to start making the case and looking to the big food processing businesses to really reduce their portfolio of ultra-processed foods in a systematic and speedy way. It's not just the product, it's the plastics, it's the packaging, it's the chemical cocktail that adds up um, inside those products. If we're not making it, we're not using the commodity either in the first place. We're not wasting land producing the commodity that's needed for that really healthy food. So back to taking a whole systems view of what there is in our plate, we can track back, can't we, the energy use, the nutrient profile, the health benefits, the waste that is all associated with the prevalence of ultra-processed foods. And now in the UK, they're making up 65% of our diets with huge implications for our health and well-being. Thank you. Carl, although the focus on fossil fuels potentially helps to correct distortions around animal products created by an emissions-only lens, there are still meats that are more ecologically sustainable or unsustainable than others, aren't there? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, and I suppose going back to your point, you know, on this sort of emissions-focused um, lens that we've we've had, 
and obviously with ruminant production really sort of coming under um under some you know i would say unfair or maybe fair criticism in in some quarters i think yeah when you look at you know, our landmass globally you know and it depends how you want to defer um yeah define a grassland but yeah it's, it's 20 to 40 percent of our, our global landmass is is under grassland the only thing that can convert that into human edible protein is ruminants um and i think they 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 play an incredibly important part in that that ecosystem that biodiversity and again it's it's how we manage those systems you know that those systems went on for millennia you know that you know you've got obviously the savannah you know wildebeest moving across them yeah, that system was working perfectly well, you know, and, and and again, that's what we're trying to sort of replicate to a degree at, at FAI with the understanding and knowledge that we've got. Um, and again, these systems, you know, we can produce, you know, high quality food, you know, and again, you know, this goes back to, you know, some of the things that Sue's saying in terms of, you know, high nutrient density. Um, you know, again, I think, you know, you look at some of the research around, you know, a, a carrot now versus something that was produced 20 25 years ago yeah the macro and micronutrients are completely different you know same with apples you know same with a lot of our fruits you know i think um yeah and, and again it's really difficult for farming you know we're, we're being sold you know this is the next seed this is the next product in terms of you know this is what the consumer is demanding a lot of farmers that i speak to in terms of a lot of this, you know, feel that they have uh, an obligation to feed the world. You know, I mean, if if you're 200 acres in the UK, I mean, you know, as I point out, you you are definitely not feeding the world from your farm. I think, you know, you are producing food and how we do that, I think certainly needs a root and branch change, you know, change in terms of of everything. You know, I think I, you know, I read in the paper the other day that um, on one of the morning programmes, they had their celebrity chef making um mashed potato and you sort of think when we're at a point that we're having to teach people to make mashed potato you sort of think yeah there needs to be a wholesale change in everything that we do you know this this needs you know we need to be in schools teaching children about you know food production you know local production all the benefits that that brings we need yeah we need to engage with that consumer um you know differently and again i think yeah the opportunities that that then starts providing for for farming and agriculture you know because we have massive opportunities in in reversing some of the challenges that we've seen um yeah which again is why we focus so much on regenerative agriculture at the farm at fai interesting i think you know, one of the things i'm taking away from this conversation that the three big things that we need to really focus on are the feed that goes into uh, animals that are used for animal products that we need to focus on things like fertilizers uh, and and the amount of processing that happens and so it, those three things to start with would be would potentially create an enormous change now patty we focus so far on food systems as energy users, but as you point out in your report, food systems are also energy producers. Farmland can be used to produce solar energy and biofuel crops. Farms, factories and restaurants can produce energy from waste. Could you take us through this area in just a bit more detail? Sure. So indeed, you know, producing energy from land can provide also as a positive benefit, additional source of income for farmers. But it can also negatively impact the environment and local communities. So, for example, um, as you mentioned, producing um, crops for fuel takes away land for actual food production, for actual direct human uh, consumption, which then can contribute to increasing food costs, 
contribute to water and air pollution, as well as greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, there was one study that said that producing um, ethanol from corn is actually worse for the climate than gasoline. The subsidies for biogas production also incentivize the growth of industrialized livestock industry. These are like the feedlot cattle, you know, like should we be, you know, something that's good for the, for climate is actually not good when we talk about the bigger food systems and, and, and kind of the livestock, industrial livestock industry. And also these types of subsidies can also incentivize deforestation. So another study found that European Union's um, palm biodiesel policy actually caused the loss of tropical forests the size of the Netherlands. So there's a degree to which this conversation links to your work on a land use framework. And I wonder how you think we can square the circle in terms of land management and what forms of energy land should be producing. So our land use framework centres on the notion of multifunctionality and diversity across the the whole of the landscape. So instead of trying to um, segment land into separate functions, we think about how we can do more than one thing on the land that we have available. Now, in in energy terms, there's lots we can do in the urban environment using solar on houses, um, insulating houses, so they use less energy in the first place, using solar on car parks, on um, on the kind of grey land that is just you know used for you know very little other than things like you know out of town superstore car parking, for example. When we think about um, the, the, the farm landscape, and if we think more creatively about multifunctionality, what how many things we can do on any one uh, piece of land, it's not it's not impossible at all to combine um, uh, well designed solar panels with growing underneath. And there's some lovely examples that farmers are already deploying, combining free range chickens with solar panels, or sheep, or horticulture. With solar panels. So we start thinking in terms of um, multifunctionality and, and meeting a range of needs at once, instead of, as Patty just said, concentrating only on climate. But if we think in terms of you know action on climate, restoring biodiversity and nature, thinking about health and well-being, uh, and thinking about a fairer and more sustainable food system, then it leads us to make some different, more imaginative, more creative choices. And presumably within that, there are things that probably we shouldn't be growing and using farmland for. And I'm guessing that biofuels sort of comes within that. Absolutely. I mean, first priority for land should be food for humans uh, and then food for animals, should that be needed. But as um, as Paul was saying just there, let's, you know, let's concentrate on ruminants, let's concentrate on uh, livestock that can do well on grasslands and not think about... Um, having to feed livestock um, from the land take. But yeah, absolutely, let's prioritise land and landscape for um, growing food for humans, for carbon sequestration, for nature recovery, uh, for tree planting, hedgerows, green infrastructure. There's, a, there's a, a neat taxonomy of priorities in our land use framework. And then potentially stack or integrate those sort of energy production things like wind turbines and solar farms uh, where possible yes. within that. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Carl, just finally, large companies, uh, I say finally, but it's a 
quite a big question. Large companies have become increasingly focused on reducing both their own internal and uh, production emissions, scope one and scope two, and on supply chain emissions, scope three. Do you think that a stronger focus on fossil fuels rather than simply emissions, the cause rather than the symptom, will help to accelerate delivery of those scope three emissions in particular? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, and I, I mean, obviously, we were involved in some of this work, um, you know, through our consultancy business. So and it's and it's very clear, I suppose, yeah, when companies have made these commitments, they probably haven't quite grasped the complexity of, of what they've signed up to. I think, as you say, Finlow, yeah, those, those scope three emissions at farm level um, are, are going to be a massive challenge, you know, for um, for that food supply chain to deal with, because because most of those supply chains don't really have a relationship with with those farmers. So maybe, you know, the scope one, two, you know, which is within their remit, you know, to be able to sort of focus on, because again, as that report said, yeah, 80% of that, you know, um, fossil fuel use is within that sector. So, you know, maybe the opportunity to to change that. But I think it's, it is, it's a, it's a wholesale change across, you know, that whole sector, you know, how we produce food at farm level, how we, you know, how we process it, how we package it and sell it to the consumer. Um, I think, yeah, it needs to be changed and it's, and it's really difficult. You know, it's really, you know, it's, this is like a, you know, we've got a super tanker. Yeah. And how, how do we turn it and how do we stop it? You know, cause it's, it, it's very, very difficult. And that's where we'll have to leave it. My thanks to Carl Williams, Sue Pritchard and Patty Fong. That's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the programme. Please like us, share our content and do get in touch if you've got news to share. More as ever on our website, 8.9.com. I've been Finlow Castain. Bye for now.